He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, or death, shall not prevail against it. What's in the name? For in this passage, as Peter names Jesus for who he is, Jesus in turn renames Peter. Now I remember sitting surrounded by books of names when my first child was born, attempting to find something suitable After discounting the name Twitchell, which would have meant she would have been called Twitchell Mitchell, we decided on Iona, which was reflective of our love of Scottish holidays and interest in Celtic Christianity. My other daughter's called Skye, so if we'd carried on having daughters, I suppose I could have used rum or muck or something like that. I don't think they would have thanked us. Names in modern culture are chosen because of where a child is conceived often, Paris and Sydney and all that sort of stuff. Haven't come across a Bogner yet. Um, Or because of who's in the charts at the time. As a school teacher, I've seen the decline of the Kylies, Jasons and Garys. That dates me. And the arrival of new and exotic names. Adele and all that stuff. However, names in biblical times are not random and often have a deep significance and show something of God's call on a person's life and the way he sees them. Naming implies an intimate knowledge. It's true of the Old Testament prophets who all have significant names related to their ministries. It's also true of Jesus' own renaming of his disciples. When Jesus first meets Peter, as recorded in John's Gospel, actually, it's in John 1, verse 42, he says, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. This is our transliteration of the Aramaic, which means rock. Peter is derived from the Greek Petros. Jesus saw Simon. He saw him. The word implies a searching gaze. He didn't just notice him. He saw into his heart. He saw into the depths of his being. He saw what he was really like. He saw the real Simon. And he gives him a new name, which sums up the whole of his personality and ministry. He is to be a rock. Well, you know, Peter was not always a rock in the Gospels. He certainly wasn't strong and stable at times. Well, who is? But Jesus sees the potential of the man. And in spite of his desertion of Jesus and his often inappropriate comments, uh, sort of approximating to Trump-like Twitters on occasion, uh, Jesus reckons he can build his church on this rock. And before we go on, can I just say as an aside, but I think it's relevant, It's a kind of spiritual renaming for us as well. Jesus also sees us with his loving and searching gaze. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees our potential for his kingdom. There's been at least one occasion where someone has prayed with me and said, Paul, you have said this about yourself, but the Lord calls you this. And it's been a deeply significant moment for me as the Lord has kind of renamed me. There are names and labels that are put onto us sometimes that are lies and aren't true, actually. We need God to rename us. There's a secret place with God we're called to where we know him and he knows us in intimacy. So what's the significance of this name Rock? What is in this name that will allow Jesus to build his church? Well, Rock, in this instance, implies that Peter's had a revelation 
of who Jesus is. Peter's been walking with Jesus. He's been listening to Jesus. He's been sharing a common life in community with Jesus. He's wrestled with the question of who this man is. But at this point, at Caesarea Philippi, significantly outside Jewish territory, away from the crowds, he's able to make the confession that stands at the midpoint of the gospel. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says that Peter can make that confession because of revelation from heaven. It all comes together for him at that moment. His own walk with Christ, his wrestling with who Jesus is, and the revelation of heaven. I'm not sure at that point he had a full understanding of the divinity of Christ. That probably came later after the resurrection. But what he was saying was this, you are the true king. You are the one Israel's been waiting for. You are God's adopted son. You're the Messiah. You're the one the Psalms and the prophets have spoken of might not have been a full revelation of who Jesus was, but quite enough for Jesus to get going on building his church. And perhaps, in fact, Jesus is saying to us, to you this morning, who do you say that I am? You may have looked at the Gospels and the evidence in a rational way. You might have been walking with him to some extent, coming to church, talking with Christian friends, reading, listening, and wondering. But Jesus says to you this morning, it's time to commit yourself and make a confession of faith. And if you do that, he will meet you with the revelation of heaven in your heart. Your heart will be strangely warmed within you, and you will know. He doesn't leave us bereft on our journey towards him. He comes to meet us and gives us the revelation we need in our hearts. And as soon as you have that revelation of who Jesus is, then Jesus can start building his church. Now, Jesus didn't say much about church because he was doing it every day. He came preaching the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Or in Aramaic, it would have sounded something like the kinging it of God is at hand. God is here doing things in activity, dynamically present. But for the kingdom to come, you need the church as its agency. God could have got a gigantic megaphone. And he could have shouted out across the universe, repent and believe in the gospel. You know, there's great sound coming from all over the universe. But he doesn't work that way. He wants to communicate through a community of people who love, love, and love again in Jesus' name. Because the community of the Trinity has for eternity loved and loved and loved. And the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father, and the Son has loved the Spirit, and the Spirit has loved the Son, and the Spirit has loved the Father, and the Father has loved the Spirit forever and ever. And all churches, the church that Jesus is building on the confession of faith that we make, is being caught up into the eternal relationships of the Trinity, loving like they love. And that's why we need church. Because God's will is going to be done on earth by a community of people who follow Jesus, who have the Spirit, who know the Father's love, and are an extension of the heart of the Trinity. And that's why Jesus builds his church. And I love church. I love it, even though it sometimes drives me loopy. <laughs> I mean, I'm part of the problem as much as any of us. <laughs> My 11-year-old daughter says to me, Dad, can't I be a Christian by myself? Yeah, a little 11-year-old question. I say, lovey, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm not afraid, I'm pleased. It's the only way that Jesus' kingdom is going to come because he works through a community of people. 
and he has always built his church in every generation out of people who have made the same confession of faith that Peter did. There's always been a multiplicity of movements as Jesus has been building his church with whoever he can, wherever he can, and whenever he can. You can't stop him. But it needs to be built with the living stones of people who have had a revelation of who he is. And there is an amazing momentum in human history. There's an alternative history of this world, which is of Jesus building his church. And the gates of Hades and death has not overcome it. And sometimes they've been called Montanists, the second century charismatic movement. And sometimes they've been called Priscillianists, who followed Bishop Priscillian in, in the fourth century. He was martyred by the church because he set up house groups and he had women leaders. And when they beheaded him, they had to behead a lot of women because they were leading his, his house groups in, in Spain in 385. And sometimes they were called Donatists and sometimes they were called Nestorians. Do you know the Nestorian church was probably one of the biggest Christian denominations ever? Nothing to do with Rome, nothing to do with the West. We have a list of their bishops from the ninth century. They had evangelized in India. They had evangelized in Iran. They had evangelized in Arabia. It was the Syrian church. They got as far as Beijing and Afghanistan. When the Catholics got to to China in the 12th century, they found the Nestorian church had beaten them to it by over 400 years. And sometimes they were called Paulicans. It was a very substantial biblical movement in the 7th, 8th, 9th centuries, modern-day Turkey. Do you know, in the 30-year period in the 9th century, 100,000 of these biblical Christians were murdered by the state. And yet the movement carried on. It must have been a very substantial biblical movement to have survived such an appalling carnage. In fact, we have evidence of some of them surviving to the 19th century. Sometimes it's called Celtic Christians, who didn't just evangelize in the nice scenery. They got as far as Germany. And sometimes they were called the Friends of God or the Bogomils in the 12th century Bulgaria. And sometimes they were called the Valdensians. I love the Valdensian movement. There's a man called Peter Valdo. He sold all he had, gave it to the poor in, in around about 1190. And he established small groups of people for prayer and reading the Bible in their own language. And one very cross bishop once said... <laughs> that one-third of Christendom, if not more, has attended a Valdensian conventicle, which means Europe was never more evangelized than at that moment. It was a biblical movement. We have have some of the documents. I've seen, he said, some lay folk so steeped in their doctrine they could repeat at heart great portions of the evangelists. These are illiterate peasants, around about 1,200, 1,300, 1,400. Great portions of the evangelists, such as Matthew and Luke, a substantial biblical movement among ordinary people. Sometimes they were called the Brethren of the Common Life in the Netherlands, you know, Thomas Akempis, the imitation of Christ. Sometimes they were called the Lollards, the followers of Wycliffe in England. Sometimes they were called Hussites. John Huss just said what Luther said a hundred years before him. Sometimes they were called Anabaptists, who was my own personal favorite. When Michael Sattler, the great Anabaptist leader, was martyred in 1527, uh, he raised his right hand in blessing as a sign that martyrdom was bearable as a prearranged signal. Such was the devotion of these people. And there were, there were uh, the Jesuits in the Catholic Church who showed astonishing devotion to Christ. The Lutherans, such as the Pietists, such as Spainer and Frank in the 17th century. And there were the Moravians. The, when the Holy Spirit fell on the Moravian Church in 1728 in Hernhut on one Sunday morning, it was like a second Pentecost. They did not know if they were on earth or in heaven. They did not stop praying for a hundred years. And they sent missionaries all the way around the world, young men going off with their coffins with them because they knew they'd been carried off by tropical diseases. And Wesley was converted through them. And we have the Methodist movement as a result of that. And sometimes they were called the Clapham sect. And sometimes they were called Holy Trinity Clapham. You know, we're 
part of an amazing momentum and movement through uh, human history of Jesus building its church, his church. And whereas in 1900, perhaps 10% of the world's population were Christian, now it's 35%. The last century has seen what was a stream becoming a river and becoming a mighty torrent for the Holy Spirit has been poured out in the last 100 years more than any other time in human history, and that in the most bloody century in human history. And when the Cultural Revolution started in China, we thought there were about a million Christians. And we thought the whole church had been decimated by Mao Zedong. But we think now there are 270 million Christians in China. might even be more as like 400 million. We don't know. The trickle has become a stream and a river and is becoming a mighty estuary and will become a mighty sea for the gospel of the kingdom will go out into all the earth and then the end will come for we can hasten the day of the Lord. And I wish we could get a sense of the momentum of what God is doing. This is the real momentum, dare I say. Well, not too much. I get into trouble. Um, I'm called to be involved in politics, do, but this is the real momentum, and I wish our 20-year-olds and that millennium generation who want to make the world a better place and who want justice and peace would get caught up into the momentum of God's strategy in human history. When I was in my 20s, my own heart was set on fire for the gospel by a little book. It's one of my most treasured possessions that I have it here. It's called The Pilgrim Church, and it was published in 1931. Uh, it does need updating, the scholarship needs uh, a bit of attention, by E.H. Broadbent, who was a missionary who worked in Eastern Europe, and it tells the story of all of these different movements that have existed both inside the institutional church and outside the institution. I love it. This is, this is my desert island book. Right? I'll be buried with it, because it's inspired me to know I'm part of the Jesus movement in human history. It does end with this, that I had an interesting evangelistic opportunity recently with a friend of mine, Jack, who's 26, millennial generation, young double bass player. He said, Paul, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. And I gave him a defense of the gospel. I told him about Jesus. We talked about the resurrection. He said, well, I quite like Jesus, but I can't see myself getting involved in your organization. The whole thing's so sexist. It's on the side of the rich and the powerful. And what about all the American evangelicals siding up to Trump? I mean, what people of his generation have picked up on is a residue of, of an institution on the side of the rich and the powerful and perhaps sexist. You know, when you look at what's happening in Chechnya now with uh, gay men being um, uh, um, murdered and tortured, what's the Orthodox Church in Russia saying about that? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so you can understand the comments that people are making. Sometimes it's been racist, sometimes it's been condemnatory, rather than the radical people's movements which gave life and hope and transformation to society. Well, I gave Jack a bit of a history lesson. <laughs> it's not the whole story, I said. Come on. And, and I talked to him about Jesus. But the real answer for people like Jack and that generation is for us to be a Christ-centered church. If they were to cut this church open that they find Jesus written on every sinew, every muscle, and deeply written into our hearts, that we show the unconditional love of Jesus as demonstrated on the cross. Jesus is building his church as we confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Can you say with Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Let's pray together. And um, I want to pray now a little prayer of commitment, actually. Uh, and if you pray this prayer for the first time in your life, or else it really means something new and special for you, then please 
talk to Jago afterwards or Jamie afterwards or myself afterwards. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we confess, I confess that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want to commit my life to you to follow you. I want to turn away from other gods and from sin and give my life and heart to you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your life. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross. Fill me with your spirit. I want to be part of your movement in human history and follow you. Amen.